what is happening, ladies and gentlemen. Remember, you can always reach out to us on Facebook and Instagram at PTSD underscore Hole. Hole is now officially up on iTunes and Spotify, so search for Hole PTSD and make sure to subscribe. And as always, you can catch us on Buzzsprout. On today's show, our guest is Giuseppe Charmani. It was uh, truly, truly a pleasure to meet him, and we got to dive into uh, things like isolation and how it relates to PTSD. Uh, Giuseppe's just really a great guy. A very brave and ambitious guy with a lot of life experience, and uh, he's also a former professional baseball player, and I just really enjoy talking to him, so I hope you guys enjoy. This is Hole with your producer and co-host, Chandler Marquez. And first responder psychologist and co-host, Dr. Jana Price-Sharps. Giuseppe Charmani, as I mentioned earlier, is a former professional baseball player. Before he got drafted to the San Francisco Giants as a catcher, he played for Fresno State from uh, 95 to 97. His path as a San Francisco Giant actually led him to play for the Fresno Grizzlies from 2001 to 2002. I'm married to my high school sweetheart, so I've been together with her for 27 years, 20 years married. I have three kids of my own. I have a 19-year-old, a 17-year-old, and a 14-year-old, and uh, we've lived in Clovis for the last seven years, and uh, I've been through four major career shifts in my lifetime, um, so all the way from being a professional baseball player to a business owner to law enforcement, and now I'm pursuing my degree, my master's degree in teaching so I can be a credentialed teacher and find out and explore that career path. Well, playing minor league baseball, Giuseppe started to long for something more. Uh, I had, I felt there was some kind of calling, like for me to go out and teach. I had gone to South Africa during my, in between my AA and AAA uh, transition. So from Shreveport, Louisiana, I, I got moved to Fresno. And during that offseason, I went to South Africa for a month. And um, I really felt like there was, I needed a transition. I was kind of playing baseball for other people rather than for myself. And so I decided at that moment to transition out and see where it took me. So I retired, quote unquote. And that led me into um, coaching baseball, uh, trying to find my way for a little while. I had a young family, so I had to financially support them. And what I found was life was a little harder out in the real world. And uh, so I opened my own business, which was a baseball business. And um, I wasn't a businessman, so that led me into law enforcement. My brother is a commander at Madera PD. And during that time, I was searching for a career that teamwork, uh, dedication, loyalty, commitment to excellence, um, all those, I think, attributes that really are part of professional baseball or at least leading up to that type of career path. And uh, I found that in law enforcement. After realizing there were parallels in team sports and law enforcement, he decided to become an officer. Giuseppe and his family were in Santa Cruz at the time, so he decided to join Santa Cruz Sheriff's Office. As his career with Santa Cruz SL progressed, Giuseppe, like many officers while on duty, started to be a part of situations that affected him. One in particular really messed with him. My first really incident was um, I had, right before I got hired on Clovis PD, I had a fight on the beach with, uh, I came out on doing a routine patrol check down on the beach and I saw three guys out at a bonfire and uh, two saw me and they took off on foot and I was by myself and so I radioed hey this is what's going on and I noticed my radio wasn't working too well and so the last guy looks at me and he starts to take off and I noticed he had a kind of like a needle or something in his hand so I, I kind of went after him and again I was I was a little bit aware of my position and it was dark it was late at night and it was just the bonfire was lighting up the beach so I didn't have a lot of outside illumination so when I grabbed him he immediately turned on me and started fighting and so I was asking for help and no help was coming 
And so I get him down on the ground. I just said, and I remember telling him, please just stop, give me your hands. And he wouldn't, he just kept fighting. And so now I'm on top of him and we are physically going blow to blow and I'm trying to get out on my radio. And I finally, and I remember very specifically saying, somebody please help me. And that was the first time I'd ever really internalized not only an outward expression of I'm, I'm in a position where I, I don't not only want to be there, I don't want to hurt this person at all. I have no desire to hurt this person. And I'm being forced into a situation that's going against every fiber of my being. Um, he's not, he's not willfully like trying to like exactly hurt me, but he's just not complying. And so now I'm resorting to trying to overcome his force. So I'm on top of him and I just start hitting him. And I remember he's kind of like defending, but he won't give me his hands. I'm just like, just give me your hands. I just need to handcuff you. And he's like, no. And he's cursing at me. And he's probably high is probably what it was. I don't remember exactly at the end, but um, finally help comes. We get him under and I have my gun. Everything is in the sand. I'll never forget. We had to go on a manhunt just to find all my equipment. That's how long the fight lasts. As Giuseppe said earlier, he didn't become a cop because he wanted the thrill. He didn't put on the badge so he could kick someone's ass. He genuinely just wanted to help people and use of force for him meant he really was at a point where he had to use force. I remember sitting in roll call the next day and everybody's like, wow, man, you really got that guy. And I'm like, well, what's that mean? And, and, and what does that mean to me? Because I was really hurting after that. I, w I was just really affected by the fact that I was not only in this fight, but I, I had this feeling about me like something was inherently wrong, really wrong with the situation. And um, I, I, I remember his face. I remember the feeling under, uh, I was on top of him. And I remember my hit, my hands hitting his face and his upper body and him fighting back and struggling and trying to decide what was right and what was wrong in that instance. And um, the next day, like I said, the, uh, the guys are like, man, you did a good job. He had bruises on his face. You know, he didn't comply. Everything was right. And the use of force was right. And I'm like, but for me, it was wrong. Right. It was wrong. It was just completely not okay. And so... I started kind of fraying at the edges. It's almost psychotic when you think about what we expect from them. On one hand, we expect them to protect all of us. On the other hand, we expect them to use force on a citizen who is doing something um, aggressive and illegal, right? If they're, you know, an armed robbery or a rape or something like that. So we're like, no, you go in and arrest that guy. You get that guy. Um, but let's say that the officer has to use significant force. Let's say he shoots somebody. Now that person goes down. Now what we ask the officer is, yes, I know that person just tried to kill you. I know that person was doing illegal things. I know that person had a weapon. He was trying to destroy your community that we're telling you you have to keep safe. Now you have to use lethal force probably in a pretty close proximity, which means you see the facial expression, you see the bullet go in, you see it's very up close and personal, and we know from PTSD research that that up, up close and personal uh, increases the risk of PTSD. But then the person falls, if nobody's around uh, to take over, now we're gonna ask our officer to go over and render aid. And, and so now they're rendering aid to a person who, if they live, is probably going to go to prison, but also will probably sue for the use of force. And so now 
the officer is going to be, you know, for lack of a better term, Monday, Monday night quarterbacked about should you have done this? Was this okay? Maybe you could have done it a different way when they had, let, you know, two seconds to make that decision. And so, you know, sometimes their face is going to appear on the paper. The, the chief or the sheriff is going to be in the paper and on the news. I've had officers whose uh, kids went to school the next day. The teacher didn't know that it was their parent that, that shot the person. One of the kids was said, well, did you see that cop murder that person last night? And the kid's sitting in the classroom, right? And so all of that, all of those societal pressures tend to increase the us versus them kind of mentality. And, and quite frankly, part of my job, or the way I view it, is to bring both groups together and get them talking. Because it's about the only way to solve that. But that's when they high five. It's like, we came home last night. We got to see our family. We are okay, and the bad guy is off the street, or the suspect is off the street. After that incident, and a buildup of other things, including problems with finances, Giuseppe realized that he needed to change. So he decided to look into joining Clovis PD. Before we get into that, though, let's hear how finances affect a lot of cops. You don't want to be financially bound when you're a cop. That's really a big thing, and I found that as personally that you know, having some financial constraints on top of trying to be a police officer that doesn't work too well because you get start working overtime seven days a week, it's there, and all of a sudden you're just at the max all the time. So we thought that would help, and it did for a short while. Giuseppe, like many others, worked more overtime to make more money, but working more just meant he dealt with more, which wasn't good for his mental health. But let's get back to his transition to Clovis PD. He was hesitant because he knew Clovis held high standards. He knew it was more letter law and not spiritual law like Santa Cruz. He would need to be a better all-around officer, and he also knew he would have to go through more training and would be held to a higher standard. I started to find that I fit in. Um, I didn't think I would at first. I didn't know. You know, I've heard some stuff about Clovis PD, good and bad, and then I met the people. I'm like, wow, this, is, this place is where I want to be. So I applied, and they accepted me pretty quickly, and I found that I fit in really well with that department. That department is just a top-notch place to work. As an officer in Clovis, again, Giuseppe faced situations where he had to use force. In fact, it was more than he was used to. According to Giuseppe, there was a denser population of people on probation, parole, and in gangs in the valley, which made use of force more common. He finally ran into a use of force that kind of acted as a wave that sunk his ship. And then... In Clovis, I got in the fight where I lost, and that's really what just, um, I, I again had to ask for help, and help wasn't there quick enough, and what happened was, was I was in a, a call for service with a 5150 guy was holding his daughter and a loved one inside the house, and they wanted help, and we had, we knew this house really well. We go up to the house and my partners go around the side. I'm at the front door. I'll never forget the screen door. There's this little girl and this little girl was asking for help. And I said, she's like, but I can't open the door. I said, no, it's okay. I'm a police officer. Open the door. She comes out and I hear the guy in the garage. I don't know why I decided to go in, but I decided to go in by myself. And I still kick myself in the pants. And I still, it's hard for me, but I didn't wait for my partners to get there. But I heard him. I'm like, oh, I think I can talk my way like a sheriff. I, I use that experience. I usually can talk my way out or talk somebody in to like calm him down. So I'm like, oh, I'll be able to talk to him. So I go inside. He's in the garage. I go through the kitchen. I go through the living room, kitchen. I see him. He's in the garage, and there's three stairs that go into the garage. And I never. And I remember him looking up at me. I go, hey, how's it going? I go, hey, it's you know, closed PD. 
I'm just here. Do you mind if I just quickly patch you down? I go through the whole setup. I just and I remember I grabbed his left wrist and he tensed up. I'm like, uh oh. I go, hey man, just put your hands behind your back. I'm just gonna put these cuffs on you for my safety. I go, you look really worked up. He's sweating, just out of control. And there was a car in the garage. It was like a two car garage, but it was full. And one car was there, and then there was a washer and dryer on the other side against the wall. And he and he starts cursing at me. He's like, I ain't doing anything. F you. He starts breaking me down. I'm like, hey man, just calm down. And still nobody's coming in. And so I go to turn him. I go, put your hands behind your back and do what I say. I go, I'm just going to detain you until we figure out what's going on. He goes, no. And he keeps continues to curse. And so I grab and try to put his hand behind his back. And he turns and flips me on my back. And now I'm on my back. And he's on top of me. And he starts to choke me out. And I'm trapped with my arms underneath me. And I can't get to my radio. I can't get to anything, taser, nothing. And my head's against the car and my feet are against the washer dryer. So I'm laying and he's on top of me starting to squeeze my neck. And, and I start, I st- and I just remember, do I headbutt him? What do I do? And then I just did it again. I said, somebody please get this guy off me now. I just needed him off me. Like now. I, I couldn't, I and I looked up at him, and it was, again, that feeling of, I am not going to hurt this guy. I want nothing to do with it. I don't want anything to happen to him or me. And um, they finally, my partners heard me, somebody say, I said, somebody get this guy off me. And um, they tased him. They got, and my one partner got kicked off, and they finally got him off me. And um, I just remember him just continuing to squeeze and um, continuing to just bear down. And um, it was like, like I said, the switch just went off in my body and just said, this is not too much. It's it's something I will never, ever do to another human being. And, and, at the, and that's where it really, afterwards I called my brother and I was crying in my patrol car. And um, I call my wife and I just said I don't know what's wrong. I just I'm having I, I'm, I'm having an emotional reaction and I don't know why. Well, the problem is when a cop loses a fight, it may very often result in him dying or her dying. You know, because the people that they're working with on the street that they're getting in a fight with are people that may be trying to kill them. So what happens is let's say they didn't get killed but they lost the fight um if they lost the fight and somebody else had to come up and rescue them what often happens is they they go down a mental rabbit hole i call them and start going what if i do that next time what if the person has a knife what if the person kills me what if i can't do this job what if what if what if and it starts coming up in their dreams a lot of times they'll have nightmares about uh, somebody taking their gun and shooting them, uh, them trying to shoot their gun and their gun not going off, that kind of thing. And so that self-doubt is, can be very debil- bil- excuse me, debilitating for an officer. So that's why I tell officers always when you wake up from a nightmare, finish it, that you're succeeding. You came out on top, you won the fight, you won the battle, you won whatever, because you are not in a position that you can let your mind have any doubt. It's kind of like what we do in sports psychology, right? You train your brain that you make the basket or you kick the ball or whatever you're doing in the uh, sports. Same thing with the cops. You have to train your brain that you are always going to come out on top. You're always going to win and you're always going to go home. 
that self-doubt creates tremendous damage. As time progressed after the fight in Clovis, things got worse for Giuseppe. I finally had a breakdown in my chief's office, just a complete breakdown. I just, I, I cried, I curled up, I gave him my gun, I said, I can't do this more. Um, at least right now, I don't know what's wrong with me. Uh, I'm at my breaking point. I, I, I'm going, um, I had already con been contemplating suicide um, for at least six months where I bring my gun out in the bathroom and I point it at my head, I look at the bullet, and I just wanted to blow my brains out in the bathroom because I just couldn't handle, not the pressure, it was just this feeling inside that just gnawed and ate at me every day of my life. And I couldn't, it just continued to build and alcohol wasn't masking anymore. Uh, me and my relationship with my wife that I wanted to break down, just I was sabotaging it. My kids were just not connecting with me at all. And I was yelling at them and I was tearing things. I was breaking things at home. It just was, it was my nightmare and I couldn't get out of it. I couldn't get out of this nightmare um, that I was in. And I didn't know how to express it. And it just kind of started flooding. It just, just tears, emotions, words. There was nothing to compartmentalize it. it there was nothing to express it or, or, or explain it. So now Giuseppe obviously realizes that something is really wrong. He's feeling some dark stuff. And this is where he begins to isolate himself. I wasn't prepared or knew how to tell my wife the depth of the pain and despair I was feeling and then the suicidal thoughts I was embarrassed about because I had known her for so long. And then when I told her just briefly, I didn't get the response back because she's like, I can't relate to what you're saying. You know, you're in a fight at 11 o'clock at night. I'm in bed, relaxed and sleeping. And I'm like, she's like, I just can't relate to it. So then because she couldn't relate to it, I started turning to other things that at least made me feel better because she wasn't able to clearly communicate and she didn't have the resources or tools by which to communicate with me. And so I isolated myself from that relationship. I, I, I truly think I was trying to sabotage the relationship. Um, not that I didn't love her, but I was really trying to break it apart because um, she, I felt like she didn't understand. And because she didn't understand uh, and didn't have the tools to help me, I felt like she was at times a liability. And so um, I can really say that with honesty. And now that I'm seeing it's not her, it was never her place to fix me, fix the situations I was in. And she never what she would never or is still does not have the ability to fix it because there's so much that happened on the job in my own life that um, she's not a psychologist and she was never licensed. And so she was trying to love me as best she could. But um, I was interpreting that as a bad thing. I was interpreting it as um, somebody who didn't or wasn't trying to understand. And therefore, I isolated myself. Um, I wasn't telling her every everything. I started really minimizing my interaction with her. Um, intimacy really was affected. Um, I was having trouble with intimacy issues. Um, I was like I said, and then like, and she was seeing how I was reacting with the children. So that affected her. She started protecting the children and I saw that. So anytime the wife does something different and she starts trying to protect the children just out of sanity, um, I saw she was doing that just to keep them safe from me, from my reactions, my overbearingness, my, my anger, my frustration, my, um, my wanting to control everything and make things not perfect, but you know, within the 
within this straight line and trying to stay within the stigmas, I was really trying to hold on tightly with an iron fist. And that just made it worse for her because she's like, I got to protect these three kids from dad. Dad's angry. Something's wrong with dad, but we can't put our, uh, we cannot put our finger on it. And uh, that led to more isolation because I thought she was against me. You know, the parenting, we weren't co-parenting. And so co-parenting becomes an issue. All these little issues become big. And all of a sudden now I'm isolated because, like, I'm not going to parent no more. I'm not going to be a husband no more. And now what am I? I'm by myself. And I'm going to deal with this pain as best as I can, which is listen to my headphones, not talk, go in my room, uh, read really funky books. I, I just, like I said, just trying to... Uh, bring it back into something that pleases myself and trying to find pleasure where I could. What's the first step they could take to kind of end this isolation cycle? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, well, there's a number of different steps they, t- they could take, but the first one is quit working all the overtime, right? And if you're financially, you have to, you've gotten yourself in that situation then go work with somebody on your finances to get your finances under control. Because so often people that work a lot of overtime, they spend the money, so now they have to have the overtime to pay the bills. You know, they bought the new house, the new boat, the new whatever. And and so get all of that under control. The second thing is you've got to go on date night. You can't just have a relationship with your spouse through your kids. You've got to have a relationship with your spouse. And I... You know, a lot of my friends and myself as well talk about it as the marital piggy bank, so to speak. If you're not putting regular deposits in that, so one day you come home and you're grumpy and you, you know, bark at your wife, you don't have anything on reserve. (laughs) But if you've done, you know, if you've done those date nights, you've connected with that person, you've called them and, and thanked them because they packed your lunch today, whatever, you're nice to them, um then what will happen is if you do have a bad day, it's much easier for people to forgive. And truly, and and I know this sounds very basic, but marriages would be a lot better off if people were just nice. Quit calling names, quit using the sarcasm, and quit yelling. If you don't have anything nice to say, do what your mother probably told you when you were a kid. Can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. You know, go to the gym and work it off. But be nice to your spouse because they're going to be nicer to you if you're nice to them. If you come in and bark at them, it's unreasonable to think they're going to be nice back. And so it's easier to be around people when they're not barking at you all the time, when they're not making snide comments. So the other thing I tell guys to ask themselves is, would you want your daughter being married to a guy like you? And it's very telling because a lot of times they just put their head down, right? And they're like, no. I'm like, then turn yourself into somebody that you want your daughter to marry. Because then your wife's going to want to be around you. And your kids are going to want to be around you. And now you're not going to be so isolated. And then my kids, of course, were just uh, basically the offshoot of that pain. Um, Because of their actions and there were children making mistakes, I would erupt thinking that they're turning into something that I thought I was out dealing with in the streets. They're just kids, you know, acting normally, making bad choices. But... I was equating it to something completely different. And that's really easy to do is to make that relationship uh, from what you're on duty from 10 to 12 hours and working overtime on top of it. You're constantly interacting with these people and all of a sudden your kids make one bad choice. and You're like, well, that's going to lead to this. I need to. And and you're also dealing with all these other emotions and the overreaction and the spilling out just comes. It spews out in, in a way that you can never imagine. Like I said, I. 
I've thrown and broke so many things in my house, um, just completely unable to control the anger. And the anger was from my job, but it came out on my kids. What would you say to some, again, our listeners who are listening, might be listening to this and say, hey, I, I'm isolating myself away from my kids, but how do I explain that to my kid? Hmm. Well, first of all, text your kids that you love them. <laughs> you know, <laughs> make that connection. Say something nice to your kids because so often with law enforcement, um, it's all about who's your friends, what's their family, you know, why are you out there, what are you doing, how come you're doing this, rather than, son, I love you, you know, daughter, I love you, how was your day, not why haven't you, when are you going to, you know, and, and kind of that police mode or that first responder mode, because most first responders are in that world of giving commands. I don't care whether you're a military person or if you're a, a fire suppression person or if you're sworn or if you're, even if you're an EMT or a paramedic, you're still going to be giving directions. And so your kids won't love. And every time you come home in a bad mood, most kids are going to assume it's because you're mad at them. And a lot of times it has absolutely nothing to do with them. Absolutely nothing. So if you come home and you've had a bad day, tell everybody, man, I had a bad day. And I am, my brain, I am just shot, you know. So I'm going to go take a shower and I'm going to go chill for a little bit. Then, you know, I'd love to catch up with you and find out how your day went. But right now, I'm just overwhelmed. Because otherwise, people make assumptions. If dad walks in and he's, he's biting everybody's head off, it's like he hates us. He doesn't love us. He doesn't want to be with us. He must be mad at us. What did we do wrong? You know, and, and the wife tends to do the same thing or the spouse or significant other. You know, it's like, what did I do? Nothing. You know, they had three bad calls in a row. And they are still trying to process it. But dad needs to tell them. He can't assume that they know that. So how did Giuseppe start to overcome this problem of isolating himself from his family? He finally met Dr. Jana Price Sharps. And she was able to validate what he was feeling in a comfortable setting. She was able to tell him that something definitely was not right and then got him on a plan to get him right. And then as I started to heal, which took months and months and months, and I started to get control of myself, I'm like, wait a minute, this is a totally different way of thinking. Um, this is something that is uh, not only a change in myself, but it's a change in everyone around me. And I started noticing that. Uh, committed to a path of not only I want to heal, but I want to live this life free from fear and have a plan that is wholly encompassing of not only family, friends. I want to be interconnected again and not to be disconnected like I was. I was so disconnected from the world from the experiences that I allowed to affect me so negatively that I want to be interconnected again. And every time I become interconnected or connected with people in a healthy way, I find that I heal that much more, just little by little. Um, I used to not be able to hug a year ago. I had a really tough time hugging people, really tough time. When somebody would come in to hug me, I didn't want them to touch me. I felt like that was an invasion of my space because for 12 hours, you're not allowed to have people hug you. You know, as a cop, you're told, you know, don't let people invade your space. And so I learned that hugging and that physical contact was really negative space. Since then, something as big as hugging for me has become an outward expression of connecting in a very positive manner. And so I've learned through podcasts, 
to reading books that are um, changing the way in which I think and which way I perceive the world. Um, listening to good classical music, believe it or not, has really helped me heal. Um, talking um, and being completely honest. Uh, a lot of times you go to work for those 10 and 12 hours and you're masking what you're feeling. And that's one more instance of where you're compartmentalizing. You're not able to talk and then things happen. You're going to get in a fight. You're going to have a bad experience. And all of a sudden the next day you got to go back to work. And then the next day you maybe take an overtime shift. And then the next day you have a day or two off, but you don't go on vacation. You choose not to go on vacation that year because you want to save your vacation hours. So now you're just working the straight year through. All these things pile on top of each other. And as I separate those, I find I become more connected to this world. This is who I am. And this is the authentic Giuseppe. And this is what I've not only struggled with, this is what I still struggle with. And you know what? I had a bad morning this morning. I had a really bad morning. I, I woke up depressed. I woke up depressed. And so I reached out to a friend of mine and I told him, listen, I'm feeling depressed. I'm not feeling very good. Um, this is what I'm feeling. And that in and of itself was healing. And I was able to accomplish things that I would never accomplish by myself. Where normally I would have sat depressed. I would have would have rolled in. And if I was still on the job, I would have gone to the job and had to mask that. And so I've, I've learning a lot about myself, about what is the authentic Giuseppe and how can I communicate that to you, to my wife, to my kids. And I've noticed a massive, massive change in the relationships as I've done that. I've healed my relationship with mom. I hadn't talked to my mom for 10 years uh, prior to last year. Uh, we now talk. She's visiting me. Uh, I talked to my mom. Uh, my dad's gone through a, a really hard heart surgery where he had a quadruple bypass. So I was able to be there for him. That's, these are all things I would not have been able to do and handle in a very real way uh, beforehand. And so um, I'm just noticing repair after uh, a growth and um, a true sense of joy. Um, I can, you know, I could say I, I experienced happy times, but to feel joy is something different for me, uh, to feel, uh, again, I go back to feeling connected. It's very easily to disconnect as, as a police officer because, um, you know, as you interact with people, it, it, it digresses that ability to, uh, be able to connect with them. Cause like I said, for me, uh, this was a, a third career ultimately it broke down my whole sense of what it meant to connect to another human being and ultimately you know not want to get hurt not want to hurt somebody else and not want to be part of that bigger issue um and so you know this healing has been and i'm still healing um i still am healing big time i'm still processing and uh, understanding who i am so what would Giuseppe say to others who are going through the same type of thing he went through? And now a year, a year as of three days ago since I had my complete breakdown in front of my chief. Uh, and he was there for me. Chief Baskell was amazing. He was comforting. He was kind. He was loving as best as he could and surprised, you know, by he has all of a sudden a guy in here crying, giving him his gun and badge saying, I can't do this no more. And a year later, I'm sitting here able to talk about it without completely breaking down. There, I met really healthy people in law enforcement. I tended to shy away from them a little bit, but um, you know there are healthy people. But you know the the profession as a whole is designed around really uh, being that 
person who is above reproach and we are so human there are going to be instances and they try through these after action meetings and things like that but it's not so safe you know you really have things that you need people like dr jana you need to get into not a therapy session but you need a trusted individual where you can authentically express yourself and give them who you are and if you can do that if you can communicate if you can listen to healthy podcasts if you can listen to uh, read healthy books if you can take time off if you can express yourself through writing and journaling if you can listen to good music if you can if you're interacting with your and you feel connected to this world you're on the right track if one of those things are missing you need to take a really healthy look at yourself and say what do i need to do to this is it friends is it family is it uh, a health professional, mental health professional? What is it I need to do? Because it is important, it is vital that you get that assistance. And people are there for you. People really are. There's support out there. I believe that with my whole heart. And that's a wrap for today, guys. Thanks for tuning in. Remember to give us a follow on social media, at PTSD underscore whole. And subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Spotify. Our next episode is part one of a two-part series covering how PTSD affects families. I'm going to sit down with Felicia Jensen, who's one of Dr. Price Sharp's interns, and her dad's also the chief of Chachilla PD. Uh, we're going to sit down and talk about some of the things we saw our dads go through and kind of the journey that brought us here today. So hope you guys tune in and enjoy the rest of your day. Remember to get whole and get out of the hole. If it ever feels like it's too much or you feel you need some resources, the suicide hotline is 1-800-273-8255. You can also find a number of resources on the website for the National Police Suicide Foundation.